Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 7 through 10. Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. Hear now God's Word. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this... He ascended. What does it mean but that he, who, he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Paul opened this section of his letter in chapter 4 with a theme of unity, saying that we should always be endeavoring to keep the unity in the bond of peace. But when we speak of unity, we need to be careful to not confuse that with another word, and that is uniformity. We can be unified without being identical. The church is not to be a a homogenized blend of people with no individual distinctions. And as we will see, unity is far better than uniformity. In fact, uniformity has a tendency to give a sameness and a dullness. But God loves variety. And this is so powerfully demonstrated in His creation. Someone has pointed out, I think Gordon Wilson, that there are somewhere around 300,000 different kinds of beetles. Look at the flowers and the trees and just everything that God does. It's just, we never run out of variety and yet there is a harmony and a beauty and a unity. He loves that beauty, that communion, that unity that comes together, that And we understand and we recognize that discord is ugly and repulsive. Paul has, leading into the part we read today, emphasized oneness. He used that word seven times, in fact. But notice that this verse, verse 7, opens with these words, but to each one of us. So he's emphasized unity how we're alike, how we're together, and now he says, but to each, we might put it this way or paraphrase and say, but to each individual, to each one of us, as God calls each of us, as he places us as living stones in his house, in this spiritual house, we are custom hewn by him, custom made to go into this building. As Ephesians 2.10 says, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We have not lost our individual identity, though He does reshape us. He does take us as we are. It's, it, I, I thought about this as a stonemason might look at a, a rough stone and be able to imagine and see that He can, from that, shape it and make it fit and make it do what He needs it to do. And that's how God works in us. He takes us in our rough form 
And he doesn't leave us in that rough form. He immediately goes to work to shape us, to fit us just right, just so in his building. We are new creations, and yet we remain unique individuals. Now, we are all one in Christ. That is, we are unified. We are assembled. We are brought together in the church. Each one of us was saved by grace through faith. We are all children of God. We are all members of the body of Christ. Like a large family, we are united in our relationships by being brothers and sisters. But nevertheless, there are still boys and girls. There are younger and older siblings. There are a variety of gifts and skills and tasks. One family with many different parts. All the children stand, though, in the same relationship to their father and mother. And we stand in the same relationship to our Heavenly Father. What makes the unity of the church so glorious is this diversity. The variations actually not only don't break the unity, they actually enhance the unity. Now, the world is already diverse. It's comprised, of course, of countless individuals. Unfortunately, almost all of them trying to do their own thing. No matter how much we may assert the principle of individualism, I do believe there is an innate, um, undeniable, inescapable urge for a unifying principle. Something to gather around. No matter how much. Uh, We try to get away from it. We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. This has found many expressions in the world, and thus people identify in a host of ways by nationality or ethnicity or race or age or education or hobbies or sports or geography or clubs, communities, families, clans and a host of special interest. It's common for people to look for other people who are like themselves and to exclude the people who are not. Self-interest are often the organizing principle for unifying people. But as Christians, Christ is our unifying principle. Rather than assembling a bunch of people who are alike, he, he draws from every tribe and tongue and nation, all kinds of people, every socioeconomic class. He draws from the whole world, and in Christ, he brings them together in this lovely unity, and yet with great diversity. And so Paul will be answering how we can have both unity and diversity in verses 7 through 16 as we continue in this chapter and how the church is to be the picture of that. Since Jesus himself is the head of the church, he is also the one who dispenses the various gifts to these individuals, to each of us has been given. And so as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and 5, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Now, 
The next verses we're going to look at here form a parenthesis. Uh, Paul is going to elaborate on this unity and diversity further, starting in verse 11. But first, he's going to pause with a sort of footnote or addendum or parenthetical statement. And I think it fits quite nicely when we see what it is he's actually saying here. And and I said, I believe, even though I think in most translations, the actual parenthesis starts in verse 9. I think you could argue that it really starts in verse 8. Now, these verses are about ascending and descending and leading captivity captive, and they have, I think, often and commonly been misinterpreted. Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18, which says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. The entire psalm is about Jehovah himself. David is magnifying the name of the Lord because of the great victory that he has just given his people. That takes him back to, in in Psalm 68, to start describing the Exodus and what God did in the Exodus. Delivering his people from Pharaoh and crossing the Red Sea and entering into the Promised Land. And now Paul is applying this same passage to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his church and to this second exodus. In the Bible, we often see this where something is describing a local historical event. But the Holy Spirit, who is inspiring this record, has also in mind a future fulfillment of what's being said. And so in the New Testament, we have an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. And so it's not uncommon for us to come to a passage like this, and now the Holy Spirit is folding back another layer. Uh, Kind of a, yes, I said this in Psalm 68 about some things that were going on then, but now I want to show you also that it has application now. has application to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his people, to the church, a bigger, broader application The current event is simply a foreshadow of what was yet to come in a bigger way. It's a prophecy about Christ. And so, for example, we see a very explicit reference to this in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So Peter is writing to these Christians who are scattered out, and he's saying, you know, the Old Testament prophets, when they prophesied, they had some awareness, some knowledge that the things they were saying, while they did have some local current application, also understood they had this broader, bigger application to you, to people in the future. And therefore, they were searching out what or what manner of time, remember we're talking about the Old Testament prophets, The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Psalm 68 is describing some of the glories that follow the conquering work of Christ. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you 
through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There's this grand audience. Angels are curious about all this. It's a great delight. They rejoice over the repentance of a sinner, but in many ways they appear to be mystified and certainly interested in how this is working, how this story is unfolding. By the way, this prophecy, this this multitude of times where the Bible speaks of some local event and then turns out it's fulfilled again hundreds, thousands of years later is one of the great proofs of the inspiration of Scripture. By applying Psalm 68 to Jesus Christ, we see, as we do in many other places in Scripture, that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. We see the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is Lord, which means that Jesus Christ is, as in Psalm 68, Elohim, Adonai, Yah, or Yahweh. Psalm 68, 7 says, O God, when you went out before your people, you marched through the wilderness. But then we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, for speaking of that event, speaking of God's people in the wilderness, says this, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And if we continue from Psalm 68, 18, and read the rest of the verse, and the next verse, here's what we have. You have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, and the Lord, Yah, or Yahweh, God might, might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us up with benefits, the God of our salvation. I love that phrase. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us up with benefits. The gifts he received here were rebellious men who had been conquered, enemies defeated. And then he distributed the spoils of victory to his people. There is both a receiving and a giving of gifts. All the gifts of the church come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what the Father says in Psalm 2.8 when he says uh, the Father is speaking to the Son in Psalm 2? And he says this, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession." You think Jesus forgot to pray that prayer? Do you think He actually prayed that prayer and asked Father to give Him the nations, to give Him as a possession the ends of the earth? And of course, the Father answered that prayer. And the Father gave Him His enemies, as we continue to read in that same psalm. We read this many times in the Bible. For example, Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the Roman Catholics have interpreted this passage to teach what they call limbus patrum. The fathers in limbo. What happens to the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believer? What happened to them when they died? It's taught that this is the place where the Old Testament saints were waiting until they could be liberated by 
the, uh, by Christ descending into hell or descending into Hades and setting them free. Some Protestants have adopted this same view of this passage, but I think it's mistaken. The erroneous view is that when the Old Testament saints died, they went into a sort of captivity where they waited. I've just called it the waiting room uh, of heaven, the foyer, um, where they waited for the final work of Christ on the cross to be completed. Sometimes it's known as the bosom of Abraham. When Jesus died, according to this view, Jesus went down into Hades and liberated this bunch of folks, these Old Testament saints, from their captivity. And he brought them to heaven. Some have thought that the reference to Christ descending into hell, which is found in the Apostles' Creed, is speaking of this event. But the Reformed Catechisms have defined that phrase as having a different reference. Heidelberg Catechism indicates that this phrase refers, that is, of Christ descending into hell, refers to Christ suffering with severity the pains of death on the cross. So question 44, why is it added he descended into hell? And the answer, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered my soul from the anguish and torments of hell. Westminster Larger Catechism seems to indicate that the phrase refers to a true and thorough death. Question 50, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? And the answer, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death until the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So what is meant by this passage in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10? Well, it's glorious. Just as Psalm 68 is glorious. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fulfill all things. This text, I believe, is describing the total victory of Christ over all his and our enemies. In the ancient world, when a king or a military leader was successful in warfare, as he came back home, he was greeted with a great victory parade. The conquered prisoners, including the kings and the princes, were part of that parade. The victorious king led captivity captives. They were put on public display, and simultaneously, the victorious king would give out gifts to the people who had assembled to celebrate and rejoice in the victory. This is the picture, I think, that Paul is giving us in this passage. The Lord Jesus Christ is leading His triumph over the devil, over sin, over death. These were the things that had captivated us. These were His and our enemies. 
And the devil, sin, and death have now been overthrown by the king. Jesus had described his work this way in Matthew 12, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. He will take those spoils. Jesus returned to heaven, leading all of those enemies captive. And then he showered his people with gifts. The one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. This is the same one who first descended to the earthly regions. The ascent of Jesus is spoken, is, uh, or took place after his resurrection, and it is from there that he dispenses the gifts. But his descent occurred before his ascent which is what he did, I believe, in the Incarnation. A similar expression, I think, is found in Philippians chapter 2, 5-11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, this parenthetical statement by Paul, I believe, demonstrates how Jesus brings unity to the church by defeating all his and our enemies and then by dispensing gifts to his people. Victorious gifts. He is the great victor, King of kings, Lord of lords. And so with the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation, we read this. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because... You have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. I think Paul had, as he's writing here in Ephesians 4, this parenthetical um, shout, this moment of, oh yeah, look what Christ has already done, already begun, where we're at, what... What's going on here? I get to, I, I have this idea that, you know, he's seeing how this story 
ends and how it's unfolding. And he's wanting to encourage the church at Ephesus. And he wants to encourage us. The Holy Spirit is giving this to us to see our place, to see what's going on, to take a peek behind the scenes, to look to the end of the book and know how the story ends. And to understand that this is central. That you're important. He called you. He gave you gifts. He put you in this story. He put you in this church. You're part of this victory. And He's called you to celebrate and to exercise those gifts to His glory. To celebrate. To serve. To advance the kingdom of God. To spread this glorious work. That's what we're called to. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to know that you have won the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ and that he has defeated all his and our enemies, making them his footstool, and that he has been pleased to distribute gifts to each of us for the sake of the church. We acknowledge that we have received all his benefits and that we are the recipients of his abundant grace. Help us to make use of these gifts for the service of the body of Christ that we may demonstrate our gratitude by bearing much fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A parallel passage, uh, I think, applies to this that we've talked about, Romans 12, 1-8. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself, your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you. Pausing there so you understand that. Plug your name in there. I say this to everyone, every individual person. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one, each individual, a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So we've learned that Jesus gave each of us gifts and that he placed us into his church to use those gifts to build up his church. We have now gathered around the family table to eat, to be nourished, and to be reminded that we are a family. You have each received, uh, you've each been given gifts to use, and you're about, uh, and you're each about to be sent out with the blessing of his benediction to go to your house, to go to your spouse, to your children, to your parents, to your siblings and to use those gracious gifts to build up and to advance his kingdom wherever he has put you. We are called to serve him as we serve one another. 
That service is not contingent upon what other people do or don't do. That's, what it's, that's why it calls for grace. And that grace that was given to us is now to be extended to others that we might all know and advance the communion of love that is ours in Christ. O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, You are the faithful one. And today we bless Your holy name and lift it up high with praise and adoration, for You and Your mercy condescended to us. You sent Your Son. God became a man, that we might have an apostle and a high priest, a mediator, that we might be saved from our sins. We thank you today for your mighty works of providence and the holy inspired record of your redemptive work throughout history. No man has ever thwarted your purpose, nor will any man ever frustrate your plan. Nothing is impossible for you. Your word shall stand forever. Indeed, you have remembered your covenant, and we bow with grateful hearts. Send us forth, O Lord, with your blessing and with your strength. Help us to remember your covenant as well that we might dwell forever in the house of the Lord. Bless now this Lord's day for your glory and our good, the feast, the rest, the joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.